Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. The House January 6th committee officially subpoenas former President Trump. They want him to testify under oath and hand over certain documents. Also today, a district court sentenced Steve Bannon to a four-month prison term for contempt of Congress. His attorney says he has a bulletproof appeal. President Biden touts deficit reduction and student debt forgiveness. Meanwhile, Republicans are vowing to fight excessive spending if they reclaim the majority. With midterms less than three weeks away, a pollster says the forecast is changing. What the numbers say about who's voting and why. 24-7 snacks and coffee, gaming consoles and more for illegal immigrants at a New York City shelter. This has some questioning the city's priorities. And the Pentagon report for suicides in the military is in. The numbers appear to be slightly better than the previous year, but still part of an upward trend. The House January 6th committee is officially subpoenaing former President Trump. They're trying to compel him to testify and provide documents. The House January 6th committee is asking former President Trump to sit for a deposition under oath beginning on or around November 14th. They're also ordering Trump to turn over certain documents by November 4th. The committee released the entire subpoena it sent to Trump. This is unlike previous subpoena announcements. The panel said in its letter to Trump, quote, as demonstrated in our hearings, we have assembled overwhelming evidence, including from dozens of your former appointees and staff, that you personally orchestrated and oversaw a multi-part effort to overturn the 2020 presidential election and to obstruct the peaceful transition of power. The committee is asking Trump to turn over any communications he had with his close allies between November 3, 2020 and January 20, 2021. Committee members say it's their obligation to seek Trump's testimony. It's not yet clear whether Trump will comply with the subpoena. Reporting by Allison Lee, NTD News. And today, a federal court sentenced former Trump advisor Steve Bannon to four months in prison. But the underlying ruling could ultimately hurt President Biden. NTD's Arlene Richards reports. So, as you know, Mr. Bannon was sentenced today. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon is facing four months in prison and a $6,500 fine. But his attorney said he will be appealing the conviction of two counts of contempt of Congress. The judge delayed the prison term until after the appeal process. Bannon's attorney David Schoen said the judge's decision to delay the sentence was extraordinary but appropriate. He said there are substantial issues left open in the case. I believe that the appeal in this case is bulletproof. The issues, the constitutional issues involved in this case are very important, but Mr. Bannon never got to tell uh, the reasons for his actions with respect to the subpoena. Schoen said the government prohibited Bannon from presenting evidence that would explain why he didn't testify before the House January 6th committee. Mike Davis, former chief counsel for Senator Chuck Grassley, explained what happened. He was instructed by his counsel that President Trump asserted executive privilege and so therefore he could not testify. That is an absolute legal defense and the district court judge uh, for some reason would not allow him to raise that defense. And I think the district court judge misinterpreted a D.C. Circuit Court ruling. Davis, also founder and president of the Article 3 project, said the D.C. Circuit is mostly Obama appointees, so he expects this case to ultimately go to the Supreme Court. This goes to the heart of the separation of powers. If a president 
is concerned that his top advisors will get hauled before courts or Congress, that seriously damages the presidency. He said this case is bigger than President Trump or Steve Bannon. What happens when Congress calls President Biden's son Hunter to testify and to testify about his discussions with his father as president? President Biden will want to assert executive privilege and he's just trashed that because of Trump and Steve Bannon. Meanwhile, Bannon told NTD he plans to continue his podcast War Room while in prison. And he made a prediction. On November 8th, there's going to have judgment on the illegitimate Biden regime and quite frankly, and quite frankly, the Nancy Pelosi and the entire committee. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. Missouri's Attorney General Eric Schmidt announced in a Twitter post today that a court granted his request to depose top Biden officials. Dr. Anthony Fauci, former White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, FBI Supervisory Special Agent Elvis Chan, and others will have to give a sworn statement relating to a lawsuit filed in May. Schmidt and Louisiana Attorney General Jeff Laundrie are alleging the Biden administration colluded with social media companies to censor free speech. And President Biden sparring with Republicans over economic policy. NTD's Iris Tao has more on the latest debate from the White House. As midterms are just now 18 days away, President Biden touts a student loan cancellation program, which could actually start canceling debt in people's account as soon as this Sunday. It's easy to apply signing up while hanging out with your friends or at home and watching a movie. The vast majority are applying on their phones. Biden's Friday speech comes after the Supreme Court rejected an emergency appeal seeking to block the program. Also on Thursday, a federal court rejected a separate lawsuit brought by six Republican-led states. The states argued that the program would cost too much taxpayer money, adding that Biden overstepped his authority as he didn't get approval from Congress in taking such sweeping action. Biden, meanwhile, helps the program. Less than a week, just close to 22 million people have already given us information to consider this life-changing relief. And early on Friday, Biden also touted what he called historic deficit reduction. The largest one-year job in American history, $1.4 trillion decline in the deficit. While Biden's eager to applaud it, conservatives point out that the drop is largely due to exploration of the massive spending programs that Biden approved during the pandemic. And House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy suggested in an interview this week that if Republicans reclaim the majority, they may be willing to use the debt limit as leverage to force spending cuts. And that gives Biden a new reason to attack Republicans. Here's what he said today. They will crash the economy next year by threatening the full faith and credit of the United States for the first time in our history, putting the United States in default unless, unless we yield to their demand to cut Social Security and Medicare. Republicans, meanwhile, have denied such claims, saying what they want is responsible and sustainable spending. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. New poll results for key midterm election metrics are changing forecasts across the country. So how are people voting and why? Earlier today, I spoke with Big Data Polls Director Richard Barris to learn more. Richard Barris, welcome to our show. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. As always, it's good to be here. Now, Big Data Poll just came out with new results for key election metrics. 
What have you learned and what's your prediction for the election now? So, I, you know, I got to say over the weekend uh, is when we really did see a, a pretty big change. But, you know, it's almost a little bit misleading because before the summer, uh, it was a big Republican lead. And then, we, you know, over the summer, there's some screwy things that happened with polling. But I know there was a lot of talk about Dobbs. And what really I think we should be taking away from this is that some of these groups that indicated early in the year that they would vote Republican uh, this year, this November, really just came back. So educated women, uh, or really educated independents and women. Uh, and that's what is making for the lead. We have Republicans up 48, 43, and I think there's a, a very good likelihood and even potential for the, for the lead to grow, given who's undecided still. They're between the ages of 30 and 64. They don't have a college degree. They label themselves as independents, and they disapprove of Joe Biden. So it's not exactly a, a, a target-rich category. Uh, for Democrats. So again, you know, we have it at five now, but we'll see what it is next week. It could grow a little bit more. And in terms of issues, voters seem to be most focused on the economy, inflation, crime, immigration. What other trends are you seeing? Hands down, inflation, cost of living, that's how we say it, the cost of living or inflation is by far number one. Uh, that's uh, almost a third of the electorate told us that that was their number one voting issue. Second was the economy at about 15%. So combined, basically half of the electorate is looking at economic issues. Abortion did um, rise to number three in this poll, but it's interesting. It's a distant, very distant number three. It's nearly tied with immigration. Out of the top five issues, uh, crime also rose quite a bit this month. Out of the top five issues, Republicans lead and lead pretty significantly out of four out of the five. And so how many people will be voting against Biden? Do you think that's, that's a right? big... Yeah, that's a big deal. So right now, we did see a Biden's approval rating tick up a little bit under 42%. We had him at 39 last time. That's typical right before a midterm election, uh, because so many of those more interested voters are all that remains in the likely voter mo model. So it, it's common. Uh, what I think we're seeing now, though, is that strongly disapprove uh, swelled to almost half. About 45% said not only do they disapprove, they strongly disapprove of the job Joe Biden is doing. And with just under three weeks from the election, could things change rapidly during this time? And what do you expect? I, I think, honestly, at this point, I think Democrats, uh, the House is gone for them. And we're really, you know, looking at that generic ballot, we're really just, uh, the question surrounds how many seats Republicans are going to get in the Senate. I really do believe that. Uh, Democrats are basically out of out of voters they could convince to vote for them. Their enthusiasm is not that low. They will vote. The problem is they're losing independence by such a big margin, and Republicans are even more enthusiastic than them. So the question for me really remains whether or not the state-level polling for Senate is going to catch up to the move that we're seeing nationally. The generic ballot will lead state-level polling as far as movement like this. And, I, you know, the question is, how big is this Republican win going to be? And I, I think most, if they're being honest with themselves, most Democrats will, will concede that. All right. Thanks so much for your time. Richard Barris, director of Big Data Poll. Of course. Appreciate it. Hey, all the best. Thanks for having me, as always. Take care. New York City has opened a shelter complex for illegal immigrants where the city provides them with TVs, gaming consoles and more. 
This has some questioning the city's priorities. City officials say it's to make the transition easier. New York City opened a shelter complex for single adult illegal immigrants after Mayor Eric Adams declared an emergency due to the influx. Immigrants will have access to TVs, gaming consoles, free snacks and coffee 24-7, and three meals a day. The city's emergency management commissioner told reporters the meals will be culturally appropriate. There will also be phones so the illegal immigrants can connect with people to get to their final destination. We in New York City want to be as helpful as possible to asylum seekers to get to wherever they, they need to get to. The center, located on an island next to Manhattan, can house up to a thousand people at a time. One Twitter user indicates that the city is caring more for non-citizens than for Americans, saying all these years the homeless and foster care children in New York City had no food, money or shelter, and somehow the Democrats in New York found money to provide everything to illegals. NTD reached out to the city officials for comment, but didn't hear back before broadcast. Nearly 20,000 illegal immigrants have come to New York since April, and an average of five or six buses, mostly from Texas, have arrived each day since early September. According to Bloomberg, the Big Apple will spend between $500 million and $1 billion this year to house the illegal border crossers who have arrived in the city in recent months. And on a national scale, the Federation for American Immigration Reform issued a cost analysis saying the immigrants who entered the country illegally under President Biden add an over $20 billion burden to American taxpayers per year. That's in addition to the $140 billion existing annual cost of providing services for long-term immigrants. However, the Biden administration is planning to stop letting Venezuelans enter the U.S., which might cause the numbers to go down. Because of that, officials in the Democrat-led city of El Paso, Texas, reportedly say they're ending a months-long relocation effort to bus immigrants to northern cities, which might also ease the influx in New York. Reporting by Arian Pastar, NTD News. Over to the West Coast, more and more Californians are frustrated with the state's rise in homelessness and crime. One Los Angeles business owner decided to take matters into his own hands. Tim Ratcliffe, a restaurant owner, became a local Los Angeles hero after chasing down and apprehending a homeless man who assaulted one of his customers. He tells California Insider's C. Karami he was having lunch with his girlfriend on a patio at the time. A homeless man came up and sucker punched an elderly man um, and knocked him over, stole his wallet, stole his cell phone, and started uh, running away. And when I saw it, I didn't even think about it. I just got up and started running after him. As we rounded the corner on the Hollywood Boulevard, he hit me, which one good hit at least, and then I uh, tackled him and I waited almost 12 minutes for the police to arrive and we arrested, had, had him arrested and uh, currently he's in jail. His girlfriend helped him as the homeless man tried biting him. Ratcliffe says the homeless crisis is causing the quality of life to diminish. Oftentimes, business owners are left to fend for themselves. It's my job because I want the corner that my business is on to look appealing. I don't want, uh, I don't want people to not want to come there because they feel unsafe. I don't want them coming there because they are not coming because they, they feel that you know, it's, a, it's a gross area. When he sees someone hanging around, he would approach them to start a conversation and ask if they are okay. He says most of the time, they only ask for some water, but there are exceptions. Since the pandemic, it seems to be a lot more 
brazened activities by homeless. I've had people just take food off of the table before. Wow. So we really, you know, we're really paying attention to that now. We have barriers that we've put up to try to prevent that as well. Ratcliffe says those who do that are usually mentally unstable, but the situation worsens when the homeless commit petty theft and the police do not respond to the minor crimes. I will call the police because I'm not going to try to get into a confrontation with them. I will stand next to them because so, I don't want a problem with any of my customers, and I'll make sure that I'm the barrier if, if need be. He is open to providing resources for the homeless, like making a call or telling them where to go so they can move on. For now, he gives his phone number to businesses within two blocks around him so they can support each other. The Pentagon has released its annual report on suicide and the military. The numbers offer hope, but they're still part of an upward trend over the last 10 years. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. The Pentagon report on suicide in the military shows that 519 service members took their own lives in 2021. That's 63 fewer than in 2020, when 582 service members committed suicide. While the decrease seems encouraging, the numbers are part of an upward trend in suicides over the past 10 years among those on active duty. Psychologist Dr. Jean Cirillo explained that high-stress experiences can have not only a lasting psychological effect, but also a physiological effect as well. These are people that have been through long-term, day-by-day stress, military, being in the trenches, not knowing when a landmine's going to go over, not being able to sleep unless you hear helicopters above you because that's your only protection. Their brain is different from a so-called normal brain that hasn't had that kind of trauma. And she said these differences can be seen in brain scans. Cirillo explained that service members who do decide to seek help for mental issues should be able to vent to peer counselors and licensed therapists on a daily basis without any stigma, without having to go on leave, and without having to lose their firearms. People have always tried to hide mental health issues, but the difference when somebody's in an emergency response situation, often if they come to counseling willingly or if they're referred to it, their firearm is taken away, they're taken off active duty, which is exactly the opposite of what they want. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin appears to have taken a different approach with the military, as seen on the suicide prevention page on the Pentagon's website. In life's difficult moments, everyone needs time and space between strong emotions and access to lethal items. You know, research suggests that easy access to firearms increases the risk of dying by suicide by as much as four to six times. So use a cable lock, a trigger lock, or a secured firearm safe. And he added this. But unfortunately, there's still a lingering stigma around asking for help. So all of us have to step up. We can all be thoughtful listeners. We can all remind our friends and family and colleagues that they are not alone. And we can all do our part to prevent suicide. If you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, you can call or text 988 to connect with the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Jason Perry, NTD News. Coming up, the candidates for the UK's next prime minister are revealed. Among them, Boris Johnson, potentially making a comeback. 
And in college football news, a possible landmark lawsuit against the NCAA is headed to trial, alleging that repetitive hits to the head resulted in degenerative brain disease. That and more coming up. Following the shortest premiership in British history, a second Conservative leadership contest has now begun to replace Liz Truss. Candidates for the top job include Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt and Boris Johnson. Opposition parties are doubling down on calls for a general election, but with the Conservatives behind in the polls, it's unlikely they will call one. As it stands, the UK can expect to find out who's their new Prime Minister next Friday. NTD's Malcolm Hudson has more. Now that Liz Truss was resigned as Prime Minister, Conservative MPs are declaring their allegiances in the second leadership contest in four months. The prime candidates are Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt and Boris Johnson. Sunak has the lead with Johnson in a solid second, while Mordaunt is trailing behind in third place. Mordaunt was the first candidate to publicly announce her bid to stand in the contest. Sunak and Johnson haven't yet publicly declared. On Friday morning, Sunak avoided questions from journalists. And Johnson is understood to be flying back to the UK from a holiday in the Caribbean due to arrive on Saturday. Other possible runners are Swayla Braverman and Kemi Badenoch, but they may struggle to get nominations. And Defence Secretary Ben Wallace ruled himself out to back Johnson. Candidates need at least 100 MPs backing them by Monday 2pm, meaning at most three will make the cut. If three remain, then the one with the lowest votes will be eliminated. The other two will then be put before Conservative Party members in an online vote. The winner will become Prime Minister, with the announcement in just one week's time. Besides Johnson, the candidates for the top job will not have been elected by the British public, hence the calls for a general election. Polls suggest the Conservatives would not win if it was held now, so it is extremely unlikely the Tories will call one. However, supporters of Johnson say he does have the mandate of the electorates, as he won in 2019. But the Lib Dems have tabled a motion in Parliament on Friday in an attempt to block Johnson from returning as Prime Minister. The motion seeks to stop MPs found to have broken the law while in government from getting into number 10. Hasta la vista, baby. Boris Johnson quoted the film Terminator 2 during his final Prime Minister's questions as he bid goodbye. But anyone familiar with the franchise will remember the most famous Terminator quote is, I'll be back. Supporters of Johnson are hoping he'll make an extraordinary political comeback, but he remains dogged by the Partygate scandals and an ongoing investigation. Rishi Sunak, on the other hand, has significant support among MPs, but he lost the contest last time round when it was put to the Conservative Party membership. Mordaunt is trailing behind the other two, but with well over 100 MPs who haven't given their backing yet, she's still in the race. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News London. And now over to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. The widow of a former USC football player is suing the NCAA for not protecting her husband from repetitive head trauma. She's taking her case to a jury on Friday. 
Her husband was former Trojans linebacker Matthew G, who in 1991 led the team in tackles and lived a relatively normal life for about 20 years afterwards. But according to the suit, by 2013 his behavior had changed and he became angry, confused and depressed. He died in 2018 with the preliminary cause of death listed as the combined effects of alcohol and cocaine. After his death, however, his brain was found to have CTE, a degenerative brain disease. Aaron Solomon, who's the chief legal analyst at Esquire Digital, told me that most of these cases get settled before they reach a jury. A lot of it depends upon the plaintiffs. I think that the family was probably very upset about the NCAA's position on this, which is not just that it wasn't responsible for G's death, but the fact that he was using alcohol and drugs to cope with a traumatic childhood. Solomon says that though the NCAA previously paid out $70 million to a separate lawsuit in 2016, it didn't mean that they were legally guilty, and if this case continues, it could set quite a precedent. To actually have a jury verdict come in against the NCAA, I think is gonna open a floodgate of litigation. Solomon also argues that the NCAA might not be the only institution that could be at fault for knowingly putting these athletes at risk. The universities that they played for have the same knowledge. And a lot of these universities, including football schools like Stanford and Notre Dame, have massive financial endowments. In addition, with the return of concussed Miami Dolphins quarterback Tua Tungavaloa this week, Solomon says the young quarterback is in superb legal standing should he bring a case forward. Solomon, who's seen many of these cases, also has a personal plea for Tua, who's missed two straight games with a concussion. And I've been saying this for weeks. If I had five minutes to talk to Tua, I would implore him to end his career now. It's very clear the way this is going to go for him. Moving on to tonight's sports schedule, six NHL teams are in action tonight, including the defending Stanley Cup champion Avalanche, who are hosting Seattle. Finally, in the baseball playoffs, the Phillies are hosting the Padres in Game 3 of the NLCS at 7.30. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.